Hello there, this is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a movie. This week we are covering Judas and the Black Messiah. It stars Daniel Kaluuya. How do you say this, Taylor? Yeah, Kaluuya, yeah. You'll know him from Get Out and Black Panther, starring alongside him, Lakeith Stanfield. You'll know him from Knives Out and Selma, Sorry to Bother You, alongside Martin Sheen and Jesse Plemons. This was uh, this was a terrifying movie, honestly, my first reaction for it. I thought this movie was going to be a little blasé and a little bit of a downer. It is uh, the story of Bill O'Neill as he infiltrates the Black Panther Party per the FBI agent Mitchell and J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, They follow party chairman Fred Hampton as he ascends and uh, falls in love as the battle rages for O'Neill's soul and he's in the midst of it. So Fred Hampton is going to be a lot of our focus here today. Daniel Kaluuya said in an interview, he was like, there's a lot of information about how he died, but not so much about how he lived. So hopefully we can illuminate some of that. I didn't know much of anything about this at all. Yeah, I didn't know much about any of this until recently. There was another film uh, that is getting a a bunch of awards as well. Uh, The the Trial of the Chicago 7, which Fred Hampton is also plays a a supporting part in that. So I I didn't know anything about this story until that film came out in the fall. So I started researching a little bit about Fred Hampton about then and realized that this film, Judas and the Black Messiah, all about him uh, would be coming out now. So again, I was saying this, I thought this was going to be, you know, maybe a more blase, more about his life, how he lived. I did not expect this to be as grippingly terrifying as it was. I mean, this is near a horror movie, even sequences that are not meant to be uh, tense or or stressful because of the nature of it, because of the nature of the subject matter. Uh, I'm, perhaps I'm reading into things, but I the, the whole movie had right. me on edge in ways that I did not expect. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I can't wait to uncover more about the true story here behind Fred Hampton. You mentioned the two main players, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, but they were actually sharing the screen in Get Out. They were both in that film. In oh, you're so right. I forgot about that. I'm so sorry. Yes, of course. How could I forget? How, do I, how yeah. can I forget? Uh, uh, Lakeith Stanfield plays the the first one where you start to realize that that maybe there's a trance and you, he's the, he grabs uh, one of the main characters and starts screaming mm-hmm. at him to actually get out. I think the titular line comes from him. <laughs> right. <laughs> but exactly. he's been all over the place lately. Uh, they get an Atlanta. I, I, I would be remiss not to yeah. mention Atlanta. Huge success on FX. He's awesome. He's also in Selma. He's in a, a few things we've already covered. And Stanfield plays Bill O'Neill, like you said, the informant, the undercover agent for the FBI. And it really took a toll on him personally, seeing some interviews as he's talking about playing this role, like you're talking about how terrifying and tragic it is. Like the scene where he's wearing the wire, his hands were tingling. And after the shoot, he was hospitalized with high blood pressure. Oh my God. He sort of joked about it in a way being like actors are presumptuous about how it affects them and whatever. But he was like, this is the this really did do a number on me personally getting into and just the the sacrifice it is to play somebody like this the scene where he actually has to betray him and drug him the makeup artist came to the director and said just so you know Lakeith has been throwing up in his trailer and crying because you have to act like he doesn't want to do this as a person that's all really amazing to hear, actually, because um, as we've been, you know, going through Black History Month and even before that, uh, covering things like uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, this film stands out in a way that 
uh, some of these others don't with its air of authenticity. Mm-hmm. It, it really makes sense to me uh, <laughs> to hear how much people were pouring into this, to hear him breaking down in his trailer. This is a man torn between two lives uh, and, and it was real life. So he's retracing the steps of somebody who did, who, who really did these things. Um, yeah. so, and to take it with that reverence and that seriousness is what this job calls for. And that's why it, you know, some people joke about the job of an actor. And so you walk on set and it's like, okay, action. I'm so ashamed. Cut. Where's my trailer? You know, like it's yeah. Okay. Ha ha ha. That yes, there's definitely that. Then there's, there's things like this, which I would hope that this would be at the forefront of what we strive to do with the medium. And so if this is really the job of an actor, what the actor is really doing and bringing to the camera is something that I don't want to do every day. It's something <laughs> I, I don't think you want to do every day. I think it's something that we don't give enough credence to when we think about how lush and, you know, Hollywood life listen like <laughs> let's take it again what what Lakeith Stanfield was doing in his trailer before they shot the scene yeah like you said in terms of bringing the authenticity to it so Akua Nieri she changed her name she is Fred Hampton's partner in the film mm-hmm. she still alive she's she was at the assassination and survived and she was nine months pregnant so four weeks later she had Fred Hampton Jr. And so they, both of them contributed majorly and got the blessing of making this film because there were lots of people that had come to them beforehand and they just thought it wasn't going to be done justice or it wasn't going to be done with any sort of reverence or was cashing in on things. So this was the project that they gave the green light to. So that's where you're talking about, oh, this doesn't feel fake in any way because they were so much involved. And and in terms of uh, Daniel Kaluuya's understanding of the reality of it, uh, he went to an opera coach to train his voice to reproduce Hamptons because that's what he's known wow. for is his commanding musical cadence. Because if you're on set 12 hours a day doing speeches, you can't damage your voice right. or lose it in any way. And then Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., like I said, he was involved. He, he took him to a place in Chicago and said, if you want to play the chairman, I want to see what you're made of, essentially, not in those exact words. But they went to K-Town in Chicago where 11 people were shot just the night before not as like a a hazing thing but he's like he wants to he wants him to go to the valley where the people are at go to the front lines the war is still waging i can take you there and not to put him in harm's way but it's like this is what you can't read in the books yeah connect like look and and daniel kaluuya is like i'm here to look with you not at you like take a step like literally in his shoes like this is an incident this is this is precisely an incident of what he was talking about. Um, that's, that, that's terrifying. Um, yeah. So that's and then what, you don't get that opportunity to do something. St- I mean, you know, the biopics and historical films all over the place, but to really have an opportunity to step your toe into the conflict for real, because it's still happening. Can you imagine that as an, as an artist, as an actor st- st- taking yeah. that on? I mean, well, Kaluuya uh, also said he was like the, he wasn't afraid. He was like, it was the op- the opposite of fear is love. Oh, I love and he was it. like, well, oh, I that's had- perfect. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Beautiful. And he was like, the the way that he described it, he was like, you know, there was a certain bounciness to the street. There's just like a bounciness in the air. Like things are hyped up a bit. But he was like, there, I wasn't afraid yes. being there. I wasn't. Oh, that's perfect. That's beautiful. And, that, and that, I want to bring out a, a moment in the film. Uh, 
Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers visit the Young Patriots, which is a group of uh, white men, uh, Southern supporters. And immediately you get the idea that there's going to be conflict here until Fred Hampton starts to speak. And as soon as he does, you start to understand. And it was in the, in this scene I understood or started to understand what the film was trying to tell me about Fred Hampton and about the Black Panther Party is that the answer to, to a question might be fear from the other side. That is your chance to insert with love. That is your chance to put your foot forward and say, aren't we better? Wouldn't we be better together? And aren't our goals actually in this direction? You got it immediately because that's the actually that's the if you don't know who Fred Hampton is, you're coming, he's the leader of the Black Panthers. You don't know, you know Chicago, only, yeah. you've only ever seen Black Panthers in like Forrest Gump or something. Like you immediately are expecting some hard-nosed retort, some line of defense, uh, and we're gonna go to a conflict right here. But that's not how he answers it. He answers him with love. And, and it's really astounding, and, it, and it's not what you expect. Uh, the, playing with those expectations for ignorant, you know, audiences like myself, it was beautiful. It's absolutely yeah. astounding. And so in terms of the production, the director, Shaka King, he said a big piece of it is, like you said, correct the record of the Black Panther Party in terms of the assumption is, oh, they're terrorists, which is horrible. But it's like that's or they're focused on militancy as opposed to a vision for a better world, free healthcare, breakfast, decent housing, like things that are socialist in nature. But what most people or a lot of people just espouse as general good living, like they weren't just right. there to take over everything in sight, which is what proponent for decent the- human life for the black community and everybody right. um, where it's so odd because, you know, I guess it's, it's posed coming from the South where the black Panther party is seen as this, uh, this almost counter answer to the KKK. Um, when it's, that would be such a, no, <laughs> that's, that, that's, and then this film is, it, it would be perfect to help realign those thoughts and ideas of where these these uh, organizations line um, mm-hmm. because the, I was seeing so much more in the charity here and the, the social good and the work yeah. that they were really, really trying to do. The socialist work they were trying to do was something that I'd never really been taught or exposed to before. Um, yeah. So it was, it, this was a beautiful way to, to see it. So here's how the writers got exposed to it. The Lucas brothers, who are more known as comedians, they learned about Chairman Fred Hampton, during an African-American studies course in college, they read the book which I read, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, other books about the Black Panther Party, stumbled upon this 1980s documentary, Eyes on the Prize, where it's revealed, oh, this guy, Bill O'Neill, was this informant. And they're like, oh, that's our end to this story. Because Fred Hampton is like a very complete person, but Bill O'Neill is the one that has the the conflict within him. So that's kind of where they saw, oh, this is... It's perfect. The, the, the movie just really portrays that. This is all from Bill O'Neill's perspective, infiltrating the Black Panther Party, towing a line. He, he believes in what they're doing, but he is... I mean, he's got to survive. This is a survival story for Bill O'Neill. And he has to make the decisions of what is best for her survival as he's as he knows that that he perhaps agrees exactly with with what he's there doing in the Black Panther yeah. Party in person and soul. So you see everything from his point of view while you get to see Fred Hampton live his life and and be living and, and showing his actual nature, which is yeah. what they're trying to do is actually paint a portrait of what this guy was like alive, not in, not in how he died and what it meant and what happened after, but in how he lived mm-hmm. uh, and, and to see it through Bill O'Neill's eyes and a conflicted point of view. Oh my God. So they have this 
piece of Bill O'Neill. They start plugging away on the screenplay. They pitched it to A24, Netflix. The thing that they put it out to the universe as is departed with COINTELPRO, the FBI subversive thing. So that's where the vibe that they're trying to go for. Will Burson, another writer, was separately working on a more comprehensive traditional biopic screenplay mm. about Chairman Fred Hampton's life. And so they joined forces with Shaka King. Oh, that's cool. To I put like it all that. together. I like because competing that, that, projects circling the same material actually combining forces. I yeah. don't feel like I hear enough of that. That's actually <laughs> really cool. Yeah, but it definitely sticks more. And that's what they were able to get through with Warner Brothers is the kind of The Departed with COINTELPRO. So it leans more in that direction because that's what Shaka King was saying. He's like, people don't want dramas, you know, mid-budget dramas, they're not going to go for that. So the way that we pitched it to them was this. So we can't deviate from that in a way. It was a lot of creative constraints to kind of put that out there. People are saying, why are you focusing on this guy who was a traitor as opposed to the the person who was- Because there's conflict. Yeah, because the conflict yeah. is inherent in this. And without a conflict, you don't have a story. You know what makes this story good? Conflict. <laughs> this, I mean, my, where else would you put the story? Yeah. So I, that's why, that's what I said when they found that 1980s doc eyes on the prize with him saying, Hey, I did this. I think it's a, um, a gorgeous point of view. I mean, every, I mean, it's racking up the awards, but I mean, I, I, I wish, I wish more films had this concerted point of view from a conflicted uh, mm-hmm. point of view. I mean, it's, it's yeah. absolutely, it's absolutely incredible. What they had was in order to research tons of books, articles, interviews, lots of things that are out of print. Because the problem is there was so much counterintelligence. Obviously, this story is about Bill O'Neill, who was a mole on the inside and then imploded everything. So there were informants that are rampant. So like even talking to people that were involved, there's such a mistrust of outsiders or to even document it. There's not much in it. It reminded me of when we talked about Harriet Tubman, too, of a like her thing was to not have people know about her. Right. Um, And if you had all of this chaos going on within your group, you would be reticent to put it down. Oh, that's fascinating. So Shaka King was saying, he's like, nothing beats the oral history of those involved. So that's most of where this stuff comes from. And like I said, Fred Hampton Jr. and his mom were on set 90% of the time. Um, Oh my God. But that was the great challenge of how do you make it this film and the real life stuff. And this is the first thing that they're willing to go give the go ahead on in terms of his legacy. Well, it's certainly uh, certainly room there. I can't I can't hardly name another one that is focused <laughs> right. on it. I they've been like they've been background characters and other things. I've already mentioned Forrest Gump, which is like the most prominent one, which is such a one dimensional look yeah. at it. Um, I've, ne- I've never really never I don't I'm not aware of another movie that has an inside look at the Black Panther Party. I wouldn't know where to turn for for for, yeah. for a competing point of view here. And then Shaka King was saying it with an interview in the Breakfast Club. He was like, I know the problems of this film. There's just too much history in it like he's like if there is a criticism he's like i can't do everything on it he's and they uh, the interviewer was like oh there should be a limited series about the women in the black panther party yeah which is also fascinating could see that so we'll get to yeah we'll get to some of that in the history but i just wanted to go into really quickly the book that they're talking about the assassination of fred hampton yes and what that is because like you said there really isn't that much information on this the author is jeffrey hayes It's the only book, really, that I could find from somebody even involved. He interviewed members of the Hampton family researching the book. It mostly covers the trial and legal work afterward because he was one of the lawyers from the People's Law Office that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. were involved in in defending. I see. But he was was with Fred Hampton. He met him at the speech after he got out for the 
allegedly stealing the ice cream, which ended up not being true. He was the one who secured his release and then was involved in the case, which was not resolved until a settlement in 82, 13 years later, where they granted 1.8 million to the seven survivors and the family of the two that were killed in the raid. Yeah, I think um, they all, they, 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 they originally, they wanted something like 47 million. And then over that 13 years yeah. worked it all the way down. I mean, it's surprising that they even got paid at all to begin with, but yeah. Well, oh and because God. they didn't even have the info on COINTELPRO that didn't even come out until 71, but there was new info as of December of 2020. No just way. Just a couple months ago, there was a historian and writer, Aaron Leonard, who through his own research because of the 2015 Freedom of Information Act, got redacted FBI copies of Mitchell's personnel file through several hundred pages of memos, reports. There are oh some God. that directly come from Hoover commending him on this plan. So now it's like the cat's completely out of the bag. FBI agent Mitchell is played by Jesse Plemons. He's the one who uh, is recruiting Bill O'Neill, Lakeith Stanfield's character, to infiltrate the Black Panther Party. Jesse Plemons, agent Mitchell, answers to J. Edgar Hoover, played by Martin Sheen. Right. And now, without a doubt, because Hoover's name is on these things saying, hey, good job with this. Like, there's a, It's undeniable that this is what happened here. Um, but that was what took so long with the trial was all of this. It was like, oh, the FBI is working on figuring it out. And it's like, well, no, they're actually covering it up. Right. You know, meanwhile, like, like meanwhile, Fred Hampton is showing up to a court case that's proving the Chicago Police Department incited a riot <laughs> to stop that movement right. from happening. Uh, the, the competing yeah. story there with the trials to the Chicago Seven. It's it's amazing though to see how these these leaves are turned on this corruption and what that actually looks like played out, born out in the streets and then in the courts. The other speaking of you know this stuff playing out in the courts, there's one other piece of media called The Murder of Fred Hampton. It was a documentary that came out in 1970, footage from within the party. There's no narration. I found it on YouTube if you want to look at it. But it was used as evidence in the trial because they went to Hampton's apartment and took footage of the crime scene before it got all mucked up. Oh, my God. So that was just interesting that this film documentary then became part of the litigation. So let's just talk about, in broad strokes, the Black Panther Party history the things that interested me from this Please, story yes. in particular, not a whole recounting of the film, but what, what I thought, like I said, notes from the book, what was worth inquiring about. The big thing, sure. top of the line, and I'll bring it up again at the end, was that, and I don't know if they do this as well in the movie, you can speak to this. O'Neill, Bill O'Neill, at the time he was recruited by the FBI, was 17 years old. Yeah, in in this first scene that he's in, he tries to like hold up a bar with some gang members or something, and they realize in the middle of it, he's like trying to hide his face. He's in a big duster and a coat and a hat and everything. Yeah, and it takes a while before people start to realize, and they literally then say on screen, oh, "He's just a kid." <laughs> so that yeah. is exactly how it starts, yeah. and he gets booked in, booked for that because that does not end well. And then Hampton, when he was assassinated, he had held the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party for about a year before the police raid when he was assassinated he was 21 yeah i was yeah i was shocked by by the end they they tell you exactly how old they were it's shocking to think of how yeah. much pressure uh, is on uh, people so young it's just like well, where was everyone out i mean you know how did it fall on these on <laughs> right, these or guys? like you know like yeah, it's it's so it's fascinating to see like well who becomes who becomes the, f- the leaders at the forefront of these things? Uh, it's it's fascinating. They're 21, 19, 20, yeah. 22. This, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Th- like the FBI is creating these massive 
undercover spending millions pr- of dollars. Yeah, for these essentially like not in terms of their character, but just their babies. Like when it comes to the Stop grand these teenagers scheme you know, of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like obviously this is deep. They want to fix thing. things. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. And then Jeffrey <laughs> Jeffrey Hayes, the lawyer who pursued the case against the Chicago Police Department and the FBI, he was 26 at the time. Oh, my God. So <laughs> What is going again, on? Oh, my God. I just wanted to bring that out to bear. I was like, that in and of itself is wild to think about when we talk about all these people. Everybody's um, in their 20s in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's, uh, Hampton's life, what he went through, at 10 years old, he started hosting these weekend breakfasts for other kids, cooking meals himself for them, wow. which is a precursor to the Black Panthers free breakfast program for kids in the neighborhood. But he was doing which this is like his biggest is like his biggest uh, uh, thing that he's trying to get done is trying to get these social programs for the community on the ground. Number one, helping the kids. Uh, so that that's like As that kid, is Hampton's yeah. like number one thing that he's trying to make sure gets done. That we have a place we can grow what we do through the kids. We give them a place to come, a place to a meal to eat. And this is how this this is how community work is really, really done. Yeah. Um, it, it was so delightful to see exactly where what he was working towards, the trajectory that he was on. And it's like when you're a kid and you're selling baseball cards on the side of the street, it's like, oh, that kid's going to be an entrepreneur, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, he's creating free breakfast programs for the kids around him so that they can eat. Like he yeah. is a social activist at 10 years old before the Black yeah. Panthers even exist, before even a hint of it. So, and then in high school, uh, he led a walkout and a boycott one because they were calling for more black teachers and more black administration in the school. Okay. And then also they weren't allowing wow. anybody to elect a uh, black homecoming king and queen. And so, wow. like I said, he, there was a boycott, there was a walkout and it ended up that they elected their first black homecoming queen because of him at this school. Oh my God. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And then in, in the school, he was a part of this, he was actually the head of this interracial council, which met whenever there was racial friction between the students. He was involved in that. And a year after he graduated, the principal brought him back for a workshop with school officials, students put together a joint plan. Like he, he's a student and they're bringing him back to say like, hey, you know how to fix this stuff or at least give us a plan to work on I this. feel like- I feel like right there would probably lay your other option for doing a Fred Hampton biopic, which be to avoid the Black Panther stuff in its entirety and go to the precursor for all of it in school. And he's leading walkouts and he's getting the homecoming queen yeah. elected. Uh, that yeah. just echoes what he will be doing on, in only a few years. That would echo the loss of what he did not get to accomplish here on Earth. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you know, looking for other ends for this story, if you if you wanted to totally avoid the assassination, the death of Black Panthers, all of that, there's an interesting way in there. Yeah. He was a stock boy at a grocery store. He washed dishes. He had factory jobs. He earned to pay for college and started a youth chapter of the NAACP in the yeah. West Suburban area. Got 200 members of students in less than a year. He can't be stopped. Can't be stopped. Um, just in terms of like his awareness of what's going on elsewhere in the world, his mother babysat for Emmett Till prior to when he was murdered at age 14 in Mississippi. Oh so he has a direct connection to this. Oh, yeah. And he witnessed white mobs attacking MLK when he came into Chicago firsthand. He was there for that. So he's seeing all of this and being involved firsthand. Firsthand, exactly. He addressed there was this rally in Maywood where he was to come to these teenagers to come to 
the village board meeting to press because his thing was like, oh, there's no public pool. There's no recreation center for us. Nobody's going to go to the one that's far away and the other ones are segregated. So we need something here. Um, mm-hmm. So they all went down to have this board meeting and there was too many people. And he said, we should all be able to be in here for this. We wouldn't even care if some of us are standing, but the police panicked, tear gas, the crowd, the group dispersed was incited, broke store windows. They arrested Fred and another guy, Jim, with mob action. And so this is where the NAACP is not exactly with him anymore, Mm. even though he was inside the building and had nothing to do with what was going on outside. The optics. uh. And so now the police are on him. He's consistently harassed and arrested for traffic violations by the police. So he just stopped driving because he's like, I can't be dealing with this anymore and was put on at this point because there were some documents found in 1995 where he was put on the FBI's agitator index as a person of interest, which is, like I said, even before he's involved in the Black Panther Party. It's like before he can drink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What in the world? Um, and like I said, it seems like he's in favor of nonviolence and integration, but right. he just gets so much police abuse, he yeah. switches his well, stance. It's, it's this effort that I think is being drudged up and, and being painted more and more is that the that the authorities' effort to paint these people in a certain light to that that will discredit them. Um, yeah. So the, they keep giving him heat, so that he d- that his real true character, his nonviolent uh, passive, his love, you know, that none of that comes through because people are screaming and getting arrested around him, thrown in. J- you paint them in this light, and that's robs in the public eye, especially at this time. It's not like we're living in today where we could tell any lie we want on the internet. It's, you know what you know, and the news is the news. Uh, it's it's easier to sway public opinion in that way uh, mm-hmm. when the heat is on top of you, and you keep getting heat, you keep. Getting Getting that reputation, uh, eventually, that just and we we talked about that with Malcolm X. And when you think back about it, we only see him reacting to the worst things that are happening in our society. So of course he's we hear he's more strict and more quote unquote violent. Um, but that is that is even in itself an attempt to discredit these figures to, yeah. to discredit uh, their their natural nature, their character. Which both I mean it sounds like both of them were meek, mild, shy people to a degree. <laughs> Yeah, he, I mean, uh, which is Fred what Hampton I'm only understanding. Out, this is yeah. insane. Fred Hampton was definitely outspoken, and of course, of course, yeah. outspoken, but like, but leading with love, and not, yeah, not yeah. Necess- not you know, n- not what they get painted with, with this idea mm-hmm. of, of 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 real violence, which yeah. they attracted this violence because of what they were trying to right. get done, not because they were spouting violence from their mouth and from their hands. Yeah. So here's the thing with the Black Panther Party. So. Chairman Fred Hampton, he became the Illinois chairman because they recruited him in 68. Like I said, in four years, he's gone from organizing for a black homecoming queen to being chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers and is advocating revolution. I mean, we keep talking about that. The 60s uh, is just like this wild decade. So we're really coming to the closing of that and where all these leaders have just been taken out. Mm -hmm. The Black Panther Party started in October of 66. And this is a key piece of it which probably a lot of people aren't aware of. It was originally called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And Huey Newton hmm. was saying he named it that after the big cats because supposedly Black Panthers don't attack first but strike as a result of aggressors' actions. So he and Bobby Seale formed this in Oakland in 66. But I think that is a big part of understanding where the narrative has gotten twisted in American history as far as like they did have an open carry policy, armed citizens patrol watching cops in Oakland and also had tons of social community programs. But the whole point was 
self-defense as yeah. the the, it's the carrying like the guns original name tells you everything you needed to know, and that the shorthand of it almost like. Or, or like who did who decided that who like, I don't know like uh, I don't know it, it it feels like this uh this hesitance to read in it's like finish the sentence and it'll tell you everything mm-hmm. you need to know about what the objective is here yeah I just thought it would be worth bringing up Black Panther the superhero because that's now what everybody affiliates right. the words Black Panther with he was created in July of sixty six which predates the party's creation oh. So the superhero came out before the Black Panther Party. But in terms of the the iconography and the name, there was the segregated World War II tank battalion, the Black Panthers. And then there was an organization in 65 in Alabama called the Loundis County Freedom Organization that had the Black Panther logo. And they were on the same track as far okay. as that sort of self-defense cop watching objectives. It's from all corners in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all happening. <laughs> So Chairman Fred Hampton's legacy, second half of things that people don't really talk about is the programs and the social awareness advocacy, which he started out with at age 10. He called them survival programs, sought to provide the fundamental elements of life, in quote. So free health clinics, free breakfast, political education classes. He said, quote, in 69, Reading is so important for us that a person has to go through six weeks of our political education before we can consider them a member. It's that Black Panther reading list that Daniel Kaluuya also read. It was much more than just carrying guns in the streets to to send a message. And then the breakfast program was his main jam, which could potentially pave the way for you know, more modern food welfare policies. There was a pilot program in Kentucky in 66 for rural kids. Now it's we definitely the, had one. We we had yeah. one at my high at my uh, at my elementary, middle, and high school. We definitely had uh, free breakfast programs for yeah. the uh, underprivileged for sure. Free lunch has existed since 1946, but breakfast was way under the radar. But now, like I said, it's it, 2012, three billion in operating costs for it. But it started as one of the Black Panther survival programs in the 60s, wow. directly for Black communities in Chicago underneath Fred Hampton. And what's crazy is that this breakfast program is directly referenced in a memo from J. Edgar Hoover talking about keeping this group isolated from the community, which would support it, and mostly pointing it out in the Breakfast for Children program. Like this is a huge thing that has to stop because the community is engaged in this. Like he doesn't – it's just bizarre that that is such a tactical, critical thing from his standpoint that's like, oh, this is a problem. I'm like, what is your, if you're just, why are you doing this? Is, do you, are you really just trying to stop their culture from, like, are you stop, then stop them from getting together? Like, what are, what were they so afraid of? Were they, were they, yeah. were they thinking that this was a front, that the breakfast program was not a real thing and that they were really like hiding militant things behind the background and that this was some sort of like, you know, f- just to, it's 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 bananas to me because either that has to be they have to be out there and saying like the the breakfast program is is not real the breakfast program is just a front so that you don't see what they do behind closed doors but i'm not hearing that you know i'm like what what was what was this focus all about and yeah. because i think we know what it really was and i want to hear it on i want to see it on paper i want to i want to read the sentences i want to just hear i want to hear the racism 
Yeah. Uh, where well, is was, it? Because yeah, so there's you know, the, I, I want I want it in plain and bold because it's getting to the point where it's like you're not saying what you're afraid of when with all this money walking out the door, the millions of dollars you're and the, all of the government resources you're throwing at this for what exactly? Where can I flip through to see what would the objective is? It's, yeah. it's, it's like it's smoke and mirrors. Yeah, the the COINTEL Pro is what you're referring to, which yeah. was what the FBI used and their whole thing, their agenda was to infiltrate and discredit any dissident groups, but what they deem as dissident. So yes, they were very concerned about communists, the KKK, the Nation of Islam, the Black Panthers, any group that they deemed to have some sort of ulterior agenda, as we see the list of people that they were following or that they were bugging Just xenophobia, rampant xenophobia. Right. Something different, put it on the list. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what it comes down um, to. And like I said, the, the the details of the program came to light in 71 when files were stolen from an FBI office in Pennsylvania. But let's on the opposite end of that, the other programs, the other efforts, one that you had mentioned, the Rainbow Coalition, was an alliance between the Black Panthers, the Latino Young Lords, and the Young Patriots, which were the working class white Southerners. Mm-hmm. And the thing that sort of boggles people's minds as well is like, his whole thing was to create this non-aggression pact among street gangs saying like, look, this is because he was much more into Marxist socialist kind of viewpoints. So his whole thing was like, this is a class thing. This is about us. Yeah, our our enemy is not each other. It's the system and the people who hold the keys to the system. And the system is changeable because guess what? We made it. They made it. It is changeable. Uh, That was what I was really, I think the film was so successful in painting Fred Hampton in his given nature of like, we are not enemies. Uh, None of us here are enemies. Our enemies lie somewhere else. Our enemies actually are in a concerted direction if, if we could just listen to each other for a minute. And he also had the mindset of not having it be in sacrifice of a love of blackness or the black community. Still saying we have our thing, but it's better that we're in solidarity than in fragmentation. Yes. That was another big piece that was like, oh, this guy who is not even 21 years old is getting everybody on his side. At least that's what the FBI was worried about. And then the the last bit in terms of the Black Panther Party that is a bit of a misconception is the men in berets with guns. So I thought I'd bring up the women in the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. as well. And especially under Chairman Fred Hampton's oversight in Chicago. So just in terms of in general, women made up two thirds of the party by 1968. Oh my God. So it was mostly women. And then from 1968 until the disbanding, the head editors of the Black Panther newspaper were all women. Oh, wow. And there's a bit from the book. No wonder the miniseries sounds like it would work so well. Yeah. When you look at it, when you look at it borne out like that, like, well, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. And for the time, there was quite a push towards more womanist, feminist, equality, autonomy. Like I said, especially under Fred Hampton. And this is from the book. They said one Panther woman described being in the office when the phone rang, the person who answered it walked over to Fred and said, The brothers are here from the West Coast, and they're staying at a hotel downtown. They want you to send some Panther sisters down there. And Fred Mm -hmm. responded and said, you can tell them Panther women in Chicago are working on Panther programs, not as whores for Panther leaders. He was very against and and like put everybody into ship shape as it comes to equality between the sexes. I want to pick out Dominique Fishback real quick. Um, Yeah. 
as uh, she plays Deborah Johnson, uh, Hampton's girlfriend. She delivers a really, really nuanced performance. She doesn't get to verbalize, I think, a lot of exactly what her uh, what her character is there to demonstrate. But if you're clued in, it's so it's so drenched in it that the that the mm-hmm. words would only drag it down. I, it, it, the conflict lay, lay inherent that sh- that he belongs to someone else. He belongs to this movement and the people. Yeah. And that is heartbreaking to process that through the lens of Deborah Johnson, who is carrying his child and knowing that he may not be here tomorrow. He may not be here to see this child because he doesn't belong to me. And ultimately he doesn't belong to my child either. It's not about coming to a conclusion because there is no conclusion. It's just the tragedy and heartbreak just in the, in that in itself. Uh, that, that she has mm-hmm. to come to terms with that the father of her child is has has, bi- has more importance than just her and them. I, I think they do her such an amazing justice to show her exactly <laughs> where she was put in the middle of of this, and not exactly. I mean, we'll never know yeah. uh, the, the heartbreak ever, uh, but to give us some sort of window as to what actually was was going on, well, or what it was and like, like. I said, to, she's to she's still him. alive. Yeah. yeah, she's still alive. Uh, she goes by Akua Nieri now. She was also a consultant on the film. She saw it. She was. I, I was only meaning to say is that some. It's such just a hurt so deep. I don't know that it's hard to to yeah. ever really convey that. To, so I I hope that the film does uh, does. I mean, it did for me. So I hope it does for others, showing just how how horrible this all was and what it what sacrifice it really takes for good to really move in society. Yeah. Um, uh, it comes at a price, and Deborah Johnson is is such an exemplary character for that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just loved what they did with her. I love Dominique Fishback's performance uh, in particular because so much of it was a bit nonverbal, and it was so beautifully authentic. Oh, that's awesome! So, unfortunately, the assassination happened. She was there. She gave birth to Fred Hampton Jr. four weeks later, and. Uh, just a reminder again, Fred Hampton was 21. William O'Neill was 20. Bill O'Neill continues to be involved with the FBI. When that documentary, Eyes on the Prize, comes out in the 80s, the day it aired, he committed suicide. And there's footage, and I think they do this in the film, of, of kind of like he looks frazzled in yeah. that. By 1974, the Chicago chapter had completely dissolved. But I just found a quote from this guy, Doc Satchel, who started the Panther Health Clinic in Chicago, yeah. one of these programs. And he, I think it speaks to the purpose of being a Black Panther and what they were yeah. doing in a, in a very succinct way. He was saying, the Panthers were an armed propaganda unit that raised the contradictions, set the example, and provided the vehicle that people could ride to revolution. And then he said, we do not say the Black Panther Party will be overthrowing the government. We heighten the contradictions so people can decide if they want to change the government. Wow. Which I just thought was a perfect way to, like we said, like, <laughs> at least in my life, I've only ever seen the one side of the, so it didn't seem like a contradiction. Right. It's like, oh, here's people with guns in the street. Right. But Maybe there is a other but- side of it. Yeah. It's not that at all. It's so, it's so, and I'm only going more and more as we, you know, trudge through uh, historical times. Um, just the, 
to feel like we're still waging these battles in the street. It's almost as if we like understood what the name Black Panther, what the full name even was that maybe we wouldn't, you know, and it's not about agreeing. It's not about like yep. switching out. It's about empathy and trying and understanding. That's really it. I, I, I wish there was more in our society that's trying, that's more interested in our conflicts instead of looking for the exit. Because if we did that little extra reading, maybe it'd answer our question. <laughs> yeah. Or a little bit extra watching in your case. And we've come over there. That's, that's, that's all we're trying to do. That's what we're Just trying do. a little to do. bit more. Just do 1% oh, more. <laughs> um, so hopefully you learned something from this. I did. Oh, man. Definitely. That's amazing. Yeah. So now thank you, Taylor. Thank you so yeah, much, thank guys. You. Thank you for listening. Uh, hit us up at Illiterate Pod on Instagram. Let us know what you're reading. Let us know what you're watching. Uh, you never know when we're going to do an episode on it. So thank you so much. We will catch you next week. <laughs>